Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 147 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Alex Garland. His first novel, The Beach, was adapted into a feature film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Garland then worked with the director of that film, Danny Boyle, on the movies 28 Days Later and Sunshine, for which Garland wrote the screenplays. He also wrote the screenplays for the recent films Never Let Me Go, based on the novel by Kazuo Ishiguro, and Dread, based on the British comic book character Judge Dread. Garland also wrote and directed the new science fiction thriller Ex Machina. And now, here's our interview with Alex Garland. All right, so we're here with Alex Garland. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Okay, so I mentioned that this is a show for fantasy and science fiction book fans, uh, primarily. So I was just wondering, could we start and just talk about growing up? What were some fantasy and science fiction books that were favorites of yours that got you into the field? Uh, the guy I kind of reach for, uh, typically when I think of that, is J.G. Ballard, uh, which and and they're books that would exist in this kind of floating state between all sorts of different genres, and in some respects. They're just themselves, you know. Uh, some of them are quite overtly sci-fi, and some of them aren't, and they're in a sort of edge area. And some of them are very grounded, in a sense, like Empire of the Sun, for example. So Ballard, uh, then John Wyndham. Uh, I read a lot of John Wyndham when I was uh, a kid. And uh, Ray Bradbury. And, um, and then, inevitably, there'd be these people, Heinlein and... Asimov and uh, Arthur C. Clarke that you would kind of encounter, uh, you know, by the book jackets as much as anything else. I'm talking about like the late 70s and early 80s, and you'd you'd find these, uh, you know, in school or in shops, there'd be these kind of amazing covers, and the cover would drag you in. And sometimes the spaceship on the cover then would not in any way appear in the novel, <laughs> but, yeah. but it had got you reading, you know. Uh, but but yeah, I, I'd say I mean if I was going to pick out a book. Uh, that made a lot of impact on me, and I read several times. It'd probably be Day of the Triffids. Yeah, that's so, a great book. Yeah, John yeah. Wyndham. John Wyndham, yeah. So, did you have uh, did you have friends who were into science fiction, or were you just kind of discovering it on your own? No, pretty much on my own, uh, except uh, nudged at times by probably both parents. But I guess it was my dad that got me to read. I think it was my mum that got me to read Ray Bradbury, and it was my dad that got me to read John Wyndham. So it was at home. But uh, with friends, no. Uh, I mean, I'm in my mid-40s, and there's been a huge sort of culture shift over my lifetime about how some of these things are seen, like video games and uh, science fiction and stuff like that. Um, and when I was growing up with those things, they were much more fringe. In fact, they were fringe, comic books and stuff like that, and they've become incredibly mainstream. There's some part of me that's that's still surprised that, uh, comic book movies dominate, you know, the horizon to the extent they do. Because I remember slightly hiding the fact I read comic books right. uh, when I was a kid. Well, you did the the screenplay for the Dread movie, and so I know you read the Dread comic book. What were some of the well, other? I grew up on the Dread. Uh, two thousand AD. I mean, actually, if you'd if you'd said books and comic books, I'd have brought two thousand AD into yeah. it because two thousand AD was a massive influence. Uh, I mean, on a lot of people. There's a lot of British writers and filmmakers and comic book artists and what, you name it, 
where you see this amazingly long shadow that 2000 AD cast within the UK. Sorry, I cut in. Oh, no, that's fine. I was just going to ask what other, uh, what other comic books were you reading growing up? Um, well, uh, 2000 AD was the main one. There was a kind of spin-off one called Star-Lord, uh, uh, which I used to read as well. And, um, then, uh, then the comic book I got into was, uh, here, Heavy Metal or Metal Hurlow. Uh, and, and it wasn't, it was very rarely, just to be honest about it, it was very rarely the writing that pulled <laughs> me in. It, it was the artwork. Um, Chicks uh, and Chainmail or? Uh, did you say chicks and chainmail? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't that because my dad's a cartoonist, and so I grew up around drawing and comic books. And it, it, when I say it was the artwork, I mean it really was the artwork. So I'd look at Mobius, and I would think, "Wow!" And the "Wow" would have nothing to do with uh, chicks and chainmail. It would be the way he was drawing a figure, or or the 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 sort of atmosphere created by the strange landscape he was drawing and the strange objects in the landscape but but i was very very aware of how beautifully drawn they were you know i really used to look at that and, and i'd copy those drawings and um uh so so genuinely it was more that um they were fantastic draftsmen and quite weird draftsmen so so you used to get some quite interesting strange out there artists in 2000 ad but they were even more strange and out there in uh metal hurl or, or uh, heavy metal and then and then actually as a result of alan moore and and a few writers but particularly alan moore who then went from the world i read comics which is 2000 AD, and went over the atlantic over to here and started writing say dc comics some of them dc some marvel but alan moore started writing swamp thing and so i went with him and then picked up swamp thing as he started writing it and i was just completely blown away that felt like next level stuff to me likewise watchmen and um, yeah absolutely um so uh and that that then opened up dc and marvel to me uh but kind of late i guess it's like i wasn't reading that stuff so much when i was 10 uh, or 11 it was it was when i was uh in my teens i guess yeah yeah and i heard you say that you you initially wanted to be a cartoonist or a comic book artist or something yeah it was kind of an assumption i think just because of what my dad did, you know, just growing up around, um, around comic books and some, again, really brilliant draftsmen. So there were these guys, um, Harvey Kurtzman and Bill Elder. And I think these are probably two kind of lost in time, these names now, but a lot of comic book artists would probably know them. Uh, and, um, dad loved these guys, particularly those two, Kurtzman and Elder. And, um, and from then, like, you could see Robert Crumb was very, a lot of the underground comic book artists like Gilbert Shelton and Robert Crumb, incredibly influenced by those guys. Because uh, there's another whole separate sort of lineage of American comics, nothing to do with DC and Marvel uh, action or anything like that, which was, um, which was from Mad Magazine in its earlier incarnation, not, not the Mad that existed actually by the time of the 70s. If I went down to the... Uh, corner shop and and bought a copy of mad magazine it was not really related to the mad magazine of the 50s and 60s which is what i grew up reading um in anthologies that my dad had collected but then you actually ended up becoming a novelist initially and yeah because because when i was about 21 so so what i was doing was drawing comic books and then writing the stories mainly because i didn't know a writer 
<laughs> this was a completely sort of self-contained exercise. I didn't really know other people that were into comic books and, uh, um, I mean a few kind of, but not really. And, uh, so I was like a sort of one man band. I was writing and, you know, drawing and coloring and lettering and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and a lot of people are, I think a lot of people start out that way. I think what I learned by the time I was in my early twenties, I just learned that actually I was not as good at drawing and I never would get as good at drawing as, as I needed to get because, because I understood enough about drawing to see my precise limitations. I think it would be fair to say. So I ditched the pictures and just start with the words. And so, I mean, given how much of your work has involved science fiction stuff, your first novel, The Beach, actually was not science fiction. Um, did you think it None of the novels I wrote were sci-fi. I wrote three novels and none of them were sci-fi. Did you, was that a conscious choice at all? Or did you think at all no. about writing any science fiction? No, I, I just, it, it's just, um, it's like horses for courses, I think, you know. Um, you write the story in the medium to which it seems best suited. Uh, there was a bunch of stuff in novels. I'd got really into backpacking when I was about 17 and spent years and years toing and froing between the UK and, uh, in particular Asia, mainly Asia and within Asia, mainly Southeast Asia. And, and I just had accumulated lots of stories and the comic books I'd started writing and drawing were comic books about Southeast Asia. Um, because you write about what you know, you know, typically, I think, particularly initially. Uh, in the early days, either you write about what you know, or you retell a story that you loved when you were a kid. I think yeah. it's one or the other, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, so I wrote about backpacking. Well, I did comic books about backpacking. I remember I did one. It was the point I consciously decided I'm going to stop doing this. Was I did it to either 62 or 64 pages, which was the length of a Tintin comic book. Love Tintin. Yeah. And. Um, I thought Tintin manages to tell a whole narrative within 62 pages. So that, that's a reasonable uh, thing to aim for. And then I spent a long, long time writing and drawing it, particularly a long time drawing it. And, and then gave it to my dad to read. And I, I literally handed it over to him and said, here, look, I just finished this comic book. And then I went away to go and make a coffee or something. And by the time I'd got back, he'd finished it. And I realized it took about seven minutes to read. And I thought, wow. That took me like a year, and it takes seven minutes to read, and I just thought, I've got to start drawing. <laughs> well, I, I, I know that you did the, the screenplay adaptation for Never Let Me Go by Casual Wish Girl, and I interviewed him two weeks ago, hmm. and I didn't actually realize, I knew you'd done the script, but I didn't know you guys were actually friends in real life. Uh, was that during your period as a novelist that you, like, how did you first meet him? Um, uh, when I moved from comic books you know, uh, attempts at comic books, I think it would be fair to say, and novels. Um, I did not, because I hadn't spent my teenage years trying to figure out how to write prose, um, which many, many novelists, maybe most novelists, that's what they've done because they figured it out quite early that it's what they wanted. But I hadn't done that. And I hadn't gone to college to learn creative writing, say, which could also help. So I really was kind of in a... Uh, not exactly a backward position, but, but I was only just off the blocks and, and I really had to figure stuff out. And, um, I didn't know very basic stuff, like literally how you attribute dialogue. I didn't know how you did it. And there were a few writers that I took off the shelves simply to, on a technical level, look at how they did it. One of them was Ishiguru. Another one was Ballard. Ballard often would not 
do any attribution of dialogue. It would just be by virtue of like proximity to the last person mentioned that you right. would you would figure out who was speaking. Uh, and Graham Greene, I think it was, would do he said, she said every line. And that fascinated me because it, like, it didn't feel like repetition. The word said, why didn't that feel like repetition? Why did it, why do you, why does your brain not register it? And all very mechanical things like that. And I ended up modeling a section of the dialogue in the, this first book I was writing, The Beach, um, or the first book I had published at any rate, on, on a section of dialogue in Ishiguru's work. Uh, because I'd been looking at it to see how he did it. And, uh, and I modeled it in a self-conscious way. And then wrote this book. It got published. Someone said, will you, uh, it's this kind of thing you get asked, you know, uh, sub editors and or commissioning editors or newspapers are constantly trawling for new people to, to drop into their paper to feed the incredibly voracious writing rate that those uh, mediums require. And, um, so I got asked, you know, will you write about your favorite book type thing? Yeah. New novelist, what's your favorite book? So I did it about an Ishiguru novel and, and mentioned that I'd stolen this thing. And uh, he then wrote me a nice letter. We had coffee and became pals. I don't know many writers, but he's one of the only ones I know. I'm a big fan, and it's kind of weird to work on someone's stuff when you, you also have learned a great deal. It's a complicated relationship. It's funny, yeah. I mean, because uh, when he was on the show, he ended up actually interviewing me for half the time about science fiction and what could he learn about science fiction. Yeah, because he's so curious. Yeah. And he actually just emailed me yesterday to continue the conversation. Um, but he, he said in an interview, I saw that you and, you and he have been having this sort of conversation too about science fiction. He said that he wouldn't have written Never Let Me Go probably were, were it not for these conversations with you talking about how science fiction could be used for to make a serious message i have no idea if that's true because the thing about ishiguru is is a he's very intellectually curious and b he's genuinely very generous so and i'm not just saying that as a young writer i sometimes used to encounter older writers and you'd get off them this incredible vibe of hostility they didn't like you they don't want young writers coming up they're they're not into that and um and with him it was exactly the opposite and because you're quite sort of tuned into that in your mid-20s uh, if some bloke who's 15 years older than you is kind of uh, looking at you with a bit of contempt or dislike, or whatever, you know, you pick up on it. Um, you also pick up on the absence of it. He's a very sort of generous bloke. So I, I don't know if what he just said is true, but we did used to talk a lot about sci-fi. And I think I just came from a position I've always, I'm like this about every genre really, is I've got no irony about it. I just like it. There's nothing... There's nothing stepped back or, or kind of, uh, too analytical about it in a way. Um, sci-fi gives these incredible permissions to talk about whatever you want. And it's not embarrassed about big ideas in other genres, including literary fiction and adult drama, adult film drama. So that in other words, the sort of grown up ends of those mediums. Actually, there's a kind of, embarrassment with big ideas that i find really kind of lame actually i sort of uh if if i've got any area of slight kind of uh wariness about a genre it's actually literary fiction and adult drama and it's because it's because they're so kind of concerned with their status i think that what they don't want is is self-consciously big ideas because because they're too, they're also educated, the people working in those fields, and they're so worried about looking sophomoric or pretentious 
they're kind of stuck in a paralysis with this thing. And so they repeat these endless same stories about microcosm human relationships in a marriage or whatever it happens to be. And um, uh, so, so that was the kind of conversation uh, Ishiguru and I would have, I suppose. Um, but I honestly think he's configured this in his mind and it wasn't really like that. He'd have written that book anyway, because he, he sits outside the, the mainstream within literary fiction. He does stuff that they, the other guys just don't do. And he's always been like that right from the get go. So uh, I, I, I can't appropriate that. <laughs> well, it strikes me though. I mean, or it's always struck me that in fiction, if you publish one book of a certain type, you're expected to keep writing that type of book forever. Whereas yeah, by it, who though? I well, mean, by your publisher, for example. I suppose that <laughs> there is some truth in that. It, it sounds so stupid when you say it, but I think it's actually true. It's such an idiotic requirement. Like, why on earth would you state something like that? Why be restrictive? It makes no sense at all. But I remember when I, so I wrote this first book, The Beach, it's all about backpackers in a kind of, uh, you know, attempt at a utopian society in southeast asia and then i wrote a second book called the tesseract which which took as its title you know a kind of uh four-dimensional cube a hypercube but uh and the you know the blood drained from the publisher's face <laughs> as i handed this over and and it and it's it's actually it, it's got uh almost uh, largely Filipino character set in the Philippines and doesn't have any of the kind of mainstream appeal that the beach turned out to have rather surprisingly from my point of view. Anyway, then I, then I was sort of sitting down to write another book or, or sort of mulling it over. And I got sat down by someone here in New York, actually not very far from where we're sitting now who said, you know what? Um, I think that, you know, it's great that you tried something different, but maybe you should start to think again about young people in like a foreign location and maybe they're trying to set something up again and uh and and in other words get me to rewrite the beach again and i i remember thinking i now have no respect for you and i can never work with you again and um so so yes that does happen uh, but it's pathetic <laughs> but what i was going to where i was going was that in film that doesn't seem to be the case that james cameron can start out making terminator and then he can make titanic and nobody says like no you're just the robot director or ridley so Scott. you think it's 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 located particularly in books it seems that way to me yeah you're probably right because you've thought about it and i, <laughs> I haven't um well i guess it would depend wouldn't it so let's say james cameron said that what he was going to do was a uh, a kind of eight million dollar adult drama about three generations in a family learning to love each other again after some seismic event, you know, which is the classic terms of that kind of drama. I think people would definitely raise eyebrows. I'm partly saying that just to be contrarian with you. <laughs> that's all. I don't really know if I believe that or not, but, um, but there, it would be heavily commented on in some respects, whereas making Avatar two and three feels People might get excited about it, but they feel like, yes, this was always somehow in the horizon or in his future. But you know what? I, I'll just concede it. <laughs> I'm automatically contrarian. I shouldn't be. It's really irritating. Well, well, no, I mean, because, I mean, I don't, certainly I don't think filmmaking is pure in this way. I mean, I've actually heard you say that you've gone into meetings with um, development people who have said idea movies don't work ever, something to that effect. Yeah, categorically, yeah, quite explicitly. But in, in fact, uh, 
right before I started working on, on an explicit ideas movie. Uh, in fact, effectively, what I was doing was I was saying, this is the film I want to work on, and they were saying that won't work because it's an ideas movie. Which film was that? Ex Machina. Okay. Um, and and a, in a very kind of visceral way, not in a contrarian way, <laughs> in the way that we were just, uh, I was just probably doing then with you, but uh, but in a sort of visceral way, I just thought that's bullshit and I don't believe in it. And so were they saying that it wouldn't, sell tickets or that it wouldn't like what would exactly was there actually they they were yes they were saying that but they were also saying it just won't work on a creative level that the ideas ideas movies fail uh so because because film is economical and reductive and therefore can't explore things uh in a complex way and but but more to the point i think what they were really saying is that at the heart of a film you can't have an idea and they really believed that they weren't they would have you see in in a way it's unfair of me to present their argument because i disagree with it so strongly that i'll only ever make them sound stupid in the repetition of it all i remember was that what came into my head very immediately sort of almost before they'd finished the sentence was clockwork orange because clockwork orange is from my point of view an ideas movie there's a really sophisticated set of ideas in that film and when i leave the film i'm not thinking about visceral moments i'm thinking about the ideas that it provoked so from my point of view that makes it an ideas movie but like i said i mean they they you see what they'd do is they'd say no no that's a that's like about teenage gangs and uh, um, in a sci-fi setting, and that's what people dig, and the ideas are, are the texture, I guess, something like that. I mean, what, what are some other things you would say are idea movies in science fiction, like 2001? Well, 2001 is definitely an ideas yeah. movie, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, um, in a way, I think Thin Red Line is an ideas movie. Um, it, I mean, uh, th that is to say, what, what happens with these things is that you quickly get into an area of debate about whether something an ideas, is an ideas movie or not. But for me, Thin Red Line is an ideas movie. There is a narrative of sorts. Um, but what I, what ha again, what happens is when the film is over, I start thinking about what the film provoked rather than narrative beats or, or or a dilemma that a character was in will they get out of the trap or not or or wasn't that funny when they said x it's i'm i'm actually thinking about something much more abstract than that so so i in those terms i guess it's an ideas movie um uh what's the other one tree of life that's an ideas movie mm. you know it just is isn't it but but they'd say yeah tree of life is an ideas movie and it's lousy <laughs> That's what they'd say, because they would have a subjective response to it that said, I, I get it is, but I don't like it. Whereas I do like True of Life. So. Well, I mean, I can imagine a, a, a more robust form of that argument just being a book can deal with ideas, a novel can deal with ideas in a much more uh, robust way than a film can. So stick to, you know, express the ideas in a book. In, in its best medium. In its best medium, yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, and... and and then I'd say, well, it probably depends on the idea. Um, uh, and it depends on the way you want to explore the idea. If you want to explore it in a forensic way, then I think what you said is probably true. Because just in terms of information, you can get much more information into a novel 
and information, or, or rather you can get explicit information into a novel uh, that, that allows you in a concrete way to see exactly what the sentence is at least attempting to say. Uh, I mean, within reason. In film, the ideas are more often alluded to. So there's, in the film I've just worked on, which is, you know, an ideas movie, I would say, um, uh, some of the ideas are very explicitly put out there and literally discussed. And others of them are, are there by illustration or by inference. Um, uh, just maybe simply in the presentation of a thing, uh, of, of a robot that looks like a woman, but isn't a woman, but maybe it is a woman. Uh, well, there's an idea contained within that. Um, and there is, in fact, in that issue, I'd say there is a brief discussion about it. But broadly speaking, in a novel, you would be able to have much more full, fulsome and, yeah, forensic type explanations or discussions of that. Um, film, film relies much more on inference, but that's its strength too. I've often thought, as someone who's worked in books and film about what you can do in a film by doing a close-up or even a mid-shot, really, of, of a glance where somebody notices something and how, how easy it is to pack massive amounts of information into that glance in terms of what the character has just seen or what they haven't seen. And in a book, how you can never quite throw the moment away and yet contain as much within it I, it's as as you can with film it, it's the thing i like most about film is probably that thing is that it has this terrific way of being able to load moments that it's also throwing away uh and that's harder in a novel well to be contrarian about that for a second though i mean cool. <laughs> the one thing that i you know in a book you can actually get inside someone's head and just tell the reader what they're thinking or inhabit their consciousness. Absolutely. And in the film, everything that the character's thinking has to be conveyed through their facial expression or body language. Or, or a bit of voiceover, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that strikes me a lot of movies is that the character is deceiving other characters in the scene, but they have to be doing it in a way that's obvious enough that the audience gets, you know, sees through them, whereas why don't the characters in the scene see through them? Well, it's funny you should say that because... Because actually, in Ex Machina, the characters are often simultaneously deceiving the audience and the other characters. And one of the conversations with the actors prior to shooting was about making sure that we didn't telegraph in the way that film often does, in exactly the way you said, that, that you abandon that relationship. Now, that's problematic in some ways because it, it makes character motivation more ambiguous. But in other ways, that's also a strength. That may be something I'm pulling from novels, I don't know. But I didn't think I was pulling it from novels. I thought it was a more explicit version of Show, Don't Tell. It was taking Show, Don't Tell to to quite a sort of uh, extremist degree or something like that. Um, but, but actually, interestingly, there are many, many times in Ex Machina where a lot of effort is made to not have a, a complicit understanding uh, or, or an implicit understanding between an audience and the character. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is absolutely a movie. It's just layers of deception uh, all yes. around. Yeah. And I wish, I mean, it's a hard movie to talk about without spoiling it, you know, and uh, I actually... We don't have to talk about it. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't trying to artfully bring it round to the reason I'm out in New York trying to find this bloody <laughs> film. I mean, I really, truly wasn't. We can, we can carry on talking about 
whatever you want. Oh, I no, really no, no. I, I mean, it's a terrific movie. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but I, I'm just pointing out it's, you know, the less you know about it, the better. And I actually had people warn me not to watch the trailers before I saw the movie. And I think that was a really good decision. Uh, I agree. I mean, I, in as much as the, um, certainly when I saw that trailer, I felt quite alarmed. Uh, but, but that's not untypical with people that work on films when they see trailers because of what information is contained within it. But that said, just in a more blanket way, it's, in, in, in the order I structure in my head, the best way to see a film is knowing nothing about yeah. it, just nothing. And, and, and on the rare occasions you do get to see films like that, it's fantastic having a narrative unfold in front of you that you have not been front-loaded about. Um, it, does, it really doesn't happen very often to me, maybe because of the area in which I work, but it does still happen sometimes, particularly with older movies that you catch on TV or something, and it's such a pleasure. Um, and then probably the second best, which is everything I fight against in some respects, but probably the second best is for everyone to say it's terrible. So that you go yeah, in there yeah. thinking it's going to be rubbish and, and, and then are, are open-minded. You're not in that, in that sort of when everyone's told you it's good and then you're in that sort of, well, prove it type mode as, as the, as the lights go down, you know, right, right here we go, movie, prove it, <laughs> you know. Are there, so, are there any science fiction movies you can think of specifically that you watched expecting them to be terrible when you said afterward, yeah, that was actually pretty good? Uh, probably lots. Um, uh, 2010, actually. I remember people were very rude about 2010 because it came after 2001. And so it was that sort of default state that by then, I mean, at the time of 2010, lots, 2001, lots of people said it was no good. But by then the world had decided it was a masterpiece. And so then 2010 is a sacrilege. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and actually, I remember watching it thinking, I'm really digging this movie. So, so that one. There's, there's, sorry, there's a Roger Zelazny quote, he's an author I, I really like, that I really like, where he said, uh, critics only ever say two things about you. They say, this guy's no good. And then after you've been around for a while, they say, this guy's really lost it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's very funny. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'll tell you a film. I'll tell you a film I saw that I knew nothing about. I knew nothing and was blown away. One of my favorite ever filmmaking, film watching, excuse me, experiences was, um, Starship Troopers, the first one. Mm. Uh, I just knew nothing. It was hardly promoted in the UK. I think I probably, I don't know why I went in there. Maybe it's because it said Starship or something. I have no idea. I didn't know the source material and just knew nothing about it. So, uh, and, and a few minutes in was thinking, Oh my God, this is the best film I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and consciously sort of enjoyed every second of the film from it beginning to it ending and then walked out just totally exhilarated. Um, so 2010 for They Undercut It and Starship Troopers for I Didn't Know What to Expect. And they were both great. Yeah. Okay, there's one thing I was really curious to ask you about. So I listened to an interview with you on the Inquiring Minds podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the host, Indra Viscontis, she mentions a scene in the movie that you thought you would cut out and she described the scene. And it was cut out. And yeah, and I, I have no recollection of the scene whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'll tell you what that's about. I, I found out later because I got emailed. Um, I, at the moment I did that interview, I was in a semi-comatose state. My brain was really only barely functioning in all sorts of different respects because just through repetition of talking about this bloody film, basically, and, and moving around too quickly from city to city and all that kind of thing. And so when she said that, I've often had this happen before, 
That is a scene I wrote and uh, then cut. And I don't trust my memory. I really don't. There are things I can remember very clearly. And if somebody tells me that's not what happened, my, my immediate response is not actually to say, no, no, that's definitely what happened, but actually to say, oh, maybe it didn't. And it's partly because I've just had it demonstrated in like a really empirical way so many times that my memory is not to be trusted. I thought there were two people there, but actually there were six or something. I mean, really kind of way off stuff like that. So when she said that to me, I remember feeling really confused, but even within the interview, I, I think I then sort of said, okay, all right, well, I'll go along with that, but it's kind of weird because I don't remember it. This is a film I'm, <laughs> I, I've worked on as hard as I've ever worked on anything in my life, and suddenly I'm doubting whether something's in there or not. Now, I just find that interesting from a memory, brain point of view, I guess. Um, what actually happened was, when I wrote this script, there was a whole bunch of things in it. Some of it was to do with science and some of it was to do with gender politics and i sent the script to various people to check it because i know partly i i know my limitations actually i i know that um i can attempt to understand something and fail to understand it and i know that i can think i'm doing something one way but because of other unconscious things i'm actually doing it another way so so i distrust myself in the same way as that memory thing it's actually completely related so I wanted to test this stuff on a bunch of people and get them to respond and talk about it and uh, correct me in a way if I'd got something quote-unquote wrong. And um, one of those people was is a friend of the person that was interviewing me in that podcast. And, uh, or, yeah, I think it was a podcast. Yeah, yeah. It, and, and had separately sent that person... Uh, had said there is a thing relating to this conversation and had sent the the dialogue. I think maybe that the person in the podcast had said, I was interested in what they were talking about at that point because that was like a philosophical science-based thing. And that particular section of the film is about free will. And so they wanted the dialogue because they couldn't remember it. So my friend, who I had tested some of the politics on, sent that section which included this other stuff that we didn't shoot. Um, so the whole thing was like really confusing, for me, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but actually what it, what it stems from is, is the testing process of, of the film, um, and, and self doubt, I guess. Yeah. Well, so when you sent it to these sort of beta readers in a sense, mm. did you get a pretty accurate sense of how audiences were going to react to the movie or have no. did something blindside you subsequently? Oh yeah. I, I, I've never not been blindsided and, I've never ever not been blindsided. Every single time I've done a, I've worked on a story. The only thing I can anticipate is that I will get blindsided. I had a hunch about some of the areas where it would come from. Uh, but, but some of the specifics I, I encounter them and I just think, are you kidding? But at the same time, I'm also thinking, ah, I know how this happens. I know what subjective response is. I know how how in some respects even very structured narratives are very formless in the way they exist in people's heads and in terms of what they attribute to those narratives in terms of what exists or doesn't exist. So um, so it's both surprising and unsurprising, I suppose. I mean, could, without giving spoilers, is there anything you could say about some of the reactions that surprised you? I think the the reaction 
it's it, it's it's hard to talk about because it's like I don't want to defend myself. I don't want to unwittingly get myself into the position of defending myself. I feel like I I figured out in my terms what this movie was about, and then I did that to the best of my ability, and then I checked it with people who I respect, and then shot and cut the film and actually retested it with that same group of people and said, did the translation of what you saw in the script make it through to the film? And Now, at that point, on some level, I feel acquitted. I feel satisfied. I can't accommodate for every subjective response and for the agenda of the person arriving at the narrative. Uh, it, it, it's, it's accusations that I have a political position that is, in fact, the exact opposite of the political position I have would be uh, or, or, or that I've completely misunderstood something about sentience where the inference I'm making would be in agreement with the person who is making that criticism. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and speaking of subjectivity, I mean, one thing that I've noticed when you talk about showing the, showing the film to an audience and then showing it again to that same audience, I've noticed this with, with stories I've workshopped is that once somebody's experienced it in one form, they're kind of polluted forever. You can't show them a revised version of it and get a, clean response out of it and people will often so you know prefer the original version even if the revised version is objectively better just because that was the first one that they encountered and that and they kind of get attached to that it's it's very true it's actually something that comes up in filmmaking a lot in terms of people submitting scripts to financiers too soon it's like uh, often i can see people will approach me and say we want to send this now and i'll look at it as a whatever to give advice or but whatever context it is and i always think you you want to go too fast just slow down because you're only going to get one shot if these people turn this down you're not going to be able to go back to them you might be able to in a technical sense you can literally send it again but the decision is is essentially made there's also it also, in a funny way, applies to assembly cuts in films, very early clumsy edits of stuff, which is, in some respects, if you show that, that rough cut, which will be a very clumsy, ugly thing to look at and very unfinessed, people who like it will still like the finished film and people that don't like it still won't like the finished film. And uh, the big fundamentals are just, entrenched into it in some kind of way i mean unless you really significantly like you did like they did in the thin red line you lose your protagonist adrian brody and create a new one in the edit well maybe that might do it that's an extreme example <laughs> but broadly speaking um i think that's what it's like so um you're doing an adaptation of jeff vandermeer's annihilation and trying to yeah yeah uh, yeah would be a better way of putting it yeah <laughs> uh and i interviewed jeff about that book uh a couple six months ago or so oh, yeah. so i've read the first two i re really loved him just want to talk about what attracted you to that project or what you're hoping to do with it well um i've worked on some i mean or just to be j just to sort of put it in a in a truthful accurate context scott rudin producer said you should read this book i read the book thought it's brilliant i really loved it and thought okay uh, I, th I think I've got uh, a handle on a way to adapt this. And then I adapted it and, and it's now in with a studio who are going to make a decision about what they, whether they want to pay for it. So, so it's in a kind of 50, 50 state. It could be 80, 20 against, it could be 80, 24, it could be 50. I've got no idea. It's just in a sort of unknown state where it hasn't, hasn't landed yet one way or the other. So that, that is what is going on with that. Um, in terms of my approach to it, 
I've done, I've done different kinds of adaptations. Never let me go apart from a sort of philosophical aspect in, in, in the presentation of the narrative in terms of a subtext, which may or may not, which is in that subjective realm we were just talking about. It's, it's like holding a mirror up to the novel within the parameters of a film not being able to show everything a book does because you'd end up with an eight hour film. Um, so within that caveat, it's like holding up a, a mirror to the book, I would say, uh, in, in some crucial respects. And to the extent that it's, it's the closest film I've ever worked on, I would say, to being an auteur movie. And the auteur was Ishiguru, um, because we referred so tightly to the tone and the, and, uh, everything, dialogue, narrative. Um, then Dread, and in the case of Dread, which is based on the 2008 character Judge Dredd. There's a very faithful, I would argue, and tested as well, actually, representation of a character and, and, and aspects, but also something which is very different from the comic book in other respects, which is the comic book has aliens and robots and a level of futurism that on our budget we couldn't begin to do, so we just look the other way. Uh, we look at a tower block with no aliens and robots and, and implicitly there are no aliens and robots in this universe. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I don't want to be disingenuous about it. We, we just sort of change those terms. And annihilation is, is somewhere between these states, I think, in terms of the way I've approached it. It's definitely not holding up a mirror to the novel. It's, um, but but it's it's true to it, it's true to my subjective response to the novel. It's true to what I responded to and got out of the novel, um, and that was that was partly to do with the some narrative aspects of this group of women entering into this strange sealed off zone, and and finding uh, something that. Well, I don't want to talk too much because it because there's a plot point embedded within it. I think that's wrong. Forget the film just for people who might want to read the book. Um, but uh, but also a tone. There was a tone in there that to me related to what I used to feel reading certain kinds of ballad novels. It's not in any way derivative, this novel. It's actually very kind of much its own thing. But what it made me feel was something like what I used to feel reading The Drowned World or The Crystal World. Uh, which were ballad novels that took a strange central conceit and then just kind of exist within them, like the world is turning to crystal. Uh, there's a sort of dream state aspect of that that I found incredibly alluring and hypnotic, and it's that that's pulled me into Annihilation, I think. The premise and the atmosphere. And I think those are the things that are... The premise, the atmosphere, and a, a, a very particular thing about the ending as well. Um, these are the things that really sucked me into that book. Well, I mean, you know, I, uh, I hadn't read, I've read the first two books in the Annihilation trilogy. I hadn't yeah. read the third one because it wasn't out yet when I interviewed Jeff, but I've been told that he actually wraps things up very nicely. And I've always thought that the TV show Lost would have been the best show ever made if they had had an ending in mind when they started it. So I was wondering, do you see, uh, Annihilation as something that is going to actually fulfill that promise of having this really bizarre, weird setup and it's actually going to pay it off in the end. I actually wrote the screenplay before reading uh, the latest, the latest book. <laughs> and, and then was really interested that there were some really quite strange connections that 
that get repeated. And, and, and what, what's interesting about that from my point of view is it shows what is unconsciously embedded within the novel. Uh, in terms of the way it makes your mind work, I find that I find that really strange and fascinating. Um, but uh, but also the way I go into these things is not uh, is is it's hard enough to to get one movie made properly, yeah. and so my goal is to try to make this film. I really want to make Annihilation. I want to. I really want to try to do it. And what I want to try and do is make one good film. That that would be my ambition. And then after that, who knows? It probably wouldn't be me attached anyway. So, All right, There's one other thing I want to ask you about. Is J.G. Ballard, uh, his high-rise novel is being made into a movie? It's been made. It's done, yeah. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, uh, Ben Wheatley uh, directed it and um, wrote the adaptation, I think, with his wife, I believe. Uh, it was just reminding me because I don't know if you've heard about there's a this is a story in New York, so I don't know if you've heard about it, but they built this high rise building where the rich people live in the top and the poor people live in the bottom and there's right. separate entrances for the two. Great. It's like <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> oh dear. No, um they ought to take a look at that novel. Things might not end out so well. <laughs> all right. So unfortunately we're all out of time, but we've been speaking with Alex Garland and this movie's called Ex Machina. Everyone should go check it out. It's one of the uh, smartest science fiction movies and we should all support smart science fiction movies so Alex thank you so much thanks man much appreciated thank you and that was our interview so a big thanks again to Alex Garland for joining us on the show big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including underpaid turtle who writes a must for any self-proclaimed geek I have been listening for a while now and the show is consistently great each interview feels fresh and brings up interesting topics that I may never have come across if it were not for this podcast. Keep up the good work. So a big thanks again to Underpaid Turtle for that great review. And a very special thank you as well to Taj Smith and Chelsea Vulgares for signing up this week to support us on Patreon. That brings our total up to $237.39 per episode. And remember that if we hit $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of 2015. So if that's something you'd like to see happen, please head on over to patreon.com geeks and sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Vinton Kalwa, who just made a very generous contribution to the show. So a big thanks again to everyone who contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.